Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. So a couple of weeks ago, on Facebook, I started a poll, and the poll said, it's not going to be very long before we're done with the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and soon I'll be back in the pulpit on Wednesday nights, which books would you like to hear preached next? And I gave them a choice of three. I said, we can preach our way through the Psalms and the poetry books, or we can go through the book of Job, or we can go through the book of Romans. Go. And there were two just clear-cut winners. Romans and Job came out way ahead. There were a few folks who said you know, they'd like to hear the Psalms, but John Willis, who I'm going to call by name here, took the time to do the math of how long I would be in Psalms if I did the Psalms, how many weeks, months, and years that would be. So based on that, he voted for Job. One of the things that convinced me that the book of Job would be our next Wednesday night topic was the number of people who said to me, I don't think I've ever heard the book of Job preached all the way through. Because usually people take that first section of Job when they're wanting to talk about suffering, or they take the end of Job when they want to talk about God's sovereignty and control over his world. But there's this big middle section of Job that people typically kind of avoid. And so I thought, well, that makes sense. If they haven't heard anybody preach through the book of Job, then I like the challenge. Let's just do that. So that's what we're going to do. You can turn, your, turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Job is one of the books that falls under the Jewish heading of the writings and the poetry books. And the book of Job is arguably one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. As we go through it, you'll notice that there's no reference to Israel. There's no reference to Moses or Sinai or temple or sacrifices or any of that. Job is probably a contemporary of Abraham. Something that early is when this book was written. Now, that's really, really amazing because being one of the earliest books in the Old Testament it also demonstrates the exact theology that we teach and believe here at GCA. Actually, the book is divided up into like four parts. There's the prologue, the introduction. That's what we're going to look at today. The kind of basic situation that everybody is aware of when they say phrases like, oh, that guy has the patience of Job. They're usually talking about the things that Job went through. That's the beginning of the book. The end of the book has a very big section of God, rather than defending himself, just declaring the vastness of his control and his sovereignty. The book ends with a short epilogue that we're also going to look at in just a moment. But there's this big middle section, sort of the 
the second act of this play, the second act of this drama, with a whole lot of dialogue and a whole lot of arguments in favor of God reacting to human will. The very thing that we here at GCA continue to reject. My point being, though this is arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament, it's remarkably contemporary. And it demonstrates and defends the very thing that we believe in. Now, through the years, plenty of folks have pointed out that the book of Job is a great classic piece of literature and a great drama. And it's just really interesting to read because right away God demonstrates that he is actually behind the good things that happen in our lives and he's behind the bad things that happen in our lives and that he's not reacting to us. He's simply sovereignly doing what he chooses to do. So we're going to be uh, starting tonight by looking at the book of Job as, like I said, just the, the prologue of it. But in order to understand the arguments that are in the second portion of Job, the best way to understand them is to start at the very end of the book. So turn to Job chapter 42 or go to the book of Psalms and go back one page. For years, I believed that the theme of the book of Job was why men suffer. Because certainly at the beginning of the book of Job, everything's fine for Job, everything is good for Job, and then terrible things happen. The kind of terrible things that if you put flesh and blood on them, they would just destroy any of us. If we had to go through it, It would just be mind-bogglingly bad. It would just be so hard for us to get through it. And we would naturally start asking, why? Why is this happening? Why, God? And that kind of becomes the middle section of the book when Job's friends come to him and say, you had to have done something. God is reacting to you. What did you do? Because Job keeps retaining his integrity and saying, I didn't do anything. He's introduced at the beginning of the book as being upright, being a man who eschews evil. And it's because he's so good that God points him out to Satan, which if you're Job at that moment, you're like, well, thanks. You couldn't have left me out of this? I'm doing fine right now. So because Job is an upright man who eschews evil, that's the reason that God chooses to let Satan bring all this trouble into his life. And so his three friends come and start saying to him various different versions of, God is reacting to you. Just admit that you've done something wrong because their version of the righteousness of God and the correctness of God, their thoughts and their opinions and their feelings of what God is like comes down to God is so just that he would only do this to you if you did something so deserving of it that God is now pouring out his punishment on you because of what you did. And Job continues to retain his integrity. 
He continues to argue that, no, I'm still the same old guy I've always been. I didn't do anything. And, and so the middle of the book is kind of three different sections of Job's three friends all making their arguments. And each time they go around, they become more insistent. The first time around, it's kind of like, well, if I was you, you know. By the third time around, they're like, you're guilty. Just say so. And then a fellow named Elihu shows up. And he speaks of God's righteousness and God's justice in doing whatever God chooses to do. And he ends up telling Job, humble yourself before the Lord. Because God's going to do what God's going to do. The best you can do is just accept that that's God. Mm. Now, I said all that to say in Job 42, starting at verse 7, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. Now that phrase right there ought to just tell you a great deal about how God views himself and his word and how you represent him. Because his wrath, his anger is stirred up when you don't say what's correct about him, which ought to be a warning to everybody who ever talks about God, especially everybody in a pulpit with an open Bible and telling people this is what God is like. So it's educational to know right from the beginning that what Eliphaz and his two friends say is what makes God angry. Because much of what they're going to say is very common current theology being preached from pulpits all over the land, and it's logical. It's rational. It makes sense to our human minds that, of course, God would be like that. Because... If suddenly I found out that Josiah was really angry at me, I would assume that I did something. I'd assume there's a cause. Mm -hmm. He's not just randomly angry at me. Maybe he is. Maybe he's some kind of psychopath, and we're just finding that out. But he's probably mad at me for a reason, for a cause. And so that's what they argue. Well, if God has done all this to you, it has to be something you did. It has to be your fault. And that's just rational. That's just logical. And so we have to remember as we're going through that section and reading all of those arguments that are going back and forth, that actually the argument in favor of the rational reacting God is the argument that makes God's anger kindled. So we have to remember that. That's not the theology that God approves of. God ends up saying... You have not spoken what is right of me like my servant Job has. Okay, that's another clue. What is Job's argument? Job's going to argue in favor of, I didn't do anything. God is just doing this because God does things. Mm. And so we have to recognize that Job is arguing in favor of God's absolute sovereignty in all things. And his three friends are arguing in favor of God reacting to human beings and what human beings do. 
and then you're going to see the various different arguments as we go through it. Just remember that God then had to tell Job, he said, now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right the way my servant Job has. So notice that when they had this great big fail stamp on their forehead from God where God said your theology doesn't work, he then didn't say to them, now get busy, clean yourself up, and correct yourself, correct your theology. He said, you need an intercessor. You need someone to come to me on your behalf because you have not spoken about me what's right. So there's even that early concept of intercession in the book of Job, the oldest book in the Old Testament. I find that fascinating. (laughs) We have no idea these days where the land of Uz is. Uz was. We have no idea where Uz was. But we assume there was a wizard there. Yes, that's right. The wizard of Uz. Never mind. Forget it. Yes. Do not shake your head at me, young man. I caught that. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil or eschewing evil. We're going to read in just a moment that he sacrificed to God on a regular basis for himself and for his family. But the important part is that he fears, he reverences, he worships God, and that he turns away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions, now you have to remember that back in the day we're talking about money, coinage was not the, the coin of the realm. Actually, animals, if you had a lot of livestock, then that proved that you were a wealthy person. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So the whole purpose of verse 3 is to tell you that Job is a rich guy. Verse 4 then will say, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. So whether we're talking about his celebration day or his birthday or whatever else, there was a custom among the seven sons where when it was his day, he would throw a big feast and all his brothers and sisters would come to his feast. And they would send and invite their three sisters and they would all eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed that cycle where each of the seven sons had their day, that Job would send and consecrate them 
rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So thus Job did continually. He was constantly interceding for his family just in case they had sinned against God. So this gives you some idea of how wealthy he was, how many sons he had, which was a great sign of inheritance and family. He had his three daughters, and he had so many animals that he could regularly sacrifice for his family. So he was an upright man. He eschewed evil. He's a good man. That's what you're supposed to get out of this. And the richest man in the East because God had just blessed him abundantly. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. How we know this, I have no idea. How the author of this book knows that, we have no idea. We just assume that it's a revelation based on the fact that all this bad stuff is about to happen. And then we get to the end of the book when God starts defending himself. Well, then we can kind of understand the backstory that there's this heavenly council going on where the sons of God are standing before God, an angelic host. And then among them, your Bibles, if they use a capital S on the word Satan, They're giving him a proper name, but actually the Hebrew word is just Satan, which means accuser. And actually in the original Hebrew, there's a definite article there. So what it really says is that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan, the accuser, was among them. No surprise, guess what the accuser is about to do? Accuse, because that's what he does, which is why we read in the New Testament that he stands before God, that he accuses the brethren day and night. He's just living up to his name. He's accusing us. So there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, and Satan, the accuser, came among them also. And the Lord said to, again, the Satan, the accuser, from where did you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. Mm -hmm. If that sounds familiar, you get all the way into the New Testament and you have Peter writing that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Apparently, This is something he does regularly. The oldest book in the Bible, that's what he's doing. You get into the New Testament, that's what he's doing. You look around the world today, he's clearly quite active. He was roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's that moment that I said Job should probably go, hey, I'm not doing anything. Just leave me out of this. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, fearing God 
and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? So this is typical of Satan all the way through the Bible, just like how he wound up in the Garden of Eden and said to the woman, Hasn't God said that you can eat of anything you want here in the garden? Just that subtlety. That's why one of his attributes and names is subtle. He's very subtle in the way he kind of tempts people to do things. And here he is saying to God, well, sure, Job's good, but he's not good because you haven't blessed him. Look at the way you've taken care of him. Look at all the good he's got. Look at all the sons. Look at all the animals. Look at his life. Of course he's being good. Why wouldn't he? Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Okay, that's an interesting theological concept. When we read from Peter that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that indicates that Satan cannot devour at will. He can only devour what he's allowed to devour, what he may devour. The same way that we saw the demoniac at the Gadarenes, who when Jesus showed up and drove the demon out, that the demon, legion, who are many, said to Jesus, can we take the pigs? Because again, the sovereign one who's in control has to allow Satan to do stuff. And that's really, really good news. That means that he cannot come and get you randomly, willy-nilly. If God has built his protective hedge around you, if he has put his spirit in you, then that is the stronger man taking up residence in you, protecting you from the demonic forces that may seek to devour you, may, to use Jesus' words, seek to sift you like wheat. He said that to Peter. But the reason that Satan had to come to Jesus to ask for Peter even was because it's up to Jesus who he gets. And so we see a demonstration of that again right away in the very oldest book of the Old Testament. We see that Satan isn't allowed to do anything without God's say-so. He's considered Job, but he can't get to Job. And on top of that, he can't get to Job's stuff. He can't get to his household. He can't get to his animals because God has protected them. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. That too is very interesting because that implies that no matter how hard men might work at things, Unless God blesses the work of your hands, there's going to be no fruition. Nothing good's going to come of it. But God had so blessed Job that even the work of his hands, even the way that he mated his animals together so that his livestock and his flocks would grow, all of that continued to be wildly successful because God blessed him to allow him to do that. So even early on here, you see Satan admitting 
you're sovereign, you're in control, I can't do anything except what you allow me to do, and even the good things that have happened to Job, you did it. You're in charge of all of this. Is it worth pointing out then that the demons seem to understand that God is sovereign? The angels certainly understand that God is sovereign. Satan here seems to understand that God is sovereign. It's just silly human beings who struggle with the idea that God is sovereign. But, says Satan in verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, there's the wager. The wager is, if you go ahead and take away that stuff, after all, he's not good for nothing. Yeah, he's, he's being good and being upright because he's benefiting from it. He's being blessed. He has plenty of good. Why wouldn't he bless the Lord and fear God as good as his life is going? But take from him the stuff he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, even though that's the wager that sits at the center of this part of this chapter, it's also just a common reality. We see it all the time. As long as life is going good, people will show up and worship God and, and fear God and bless God with their material blessings and everything else. And they'll speak well of God and they'll say, oh, I'm fine. Have you ever met anybody who when you say, how you doing? They say, oh, blessed. It's very common. Oh, I'm blessed. I had a fellow say to me a few months ago, highly blessed and fully favored. I said, really? Well, good. Your life's going well then. Satan says, but take his stuff from him. Then what's he going to be like? Well, I've seen it happen time and time again in people's lives. God allows that they lose all that good stuff that they have. And it's amazing how many people will turn on God. It's amazing how quickly people will shake their fist and say, where is God in all this? Because they have the concept that if God is with them, then everything's going to go good for them. What you're about to find out in the book of Job is God is just as completely with you when everything goes horribly bad. Still sovereign God. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. All these big theological concepts. Notice that Satan says, if you put your hand on him, if you touch his stuff. So he's enticing God to do evil. He's enticing God to be the one that brings about this terror in, in Job's life. God cannot be tempted with sin. God is good, God is righteous, God is holy. Now we start to find out the purpose of Satan. Why does Satan even exist? He exists so that there would be sin in God's universe, so that all men can be reckoned sinners, as we've been seeing in the book of Romans at men's meeting on Tuesday night. The purpose of God's law is to reckon everybody across the board as guilty, so that he can show grace on all, 
So how is he going to accomplish that fall of mankind if he is nothing but good and right? Well, he has a Satan. He has an accuser who he allows to fall into that kind of sin and depravity and become the tempter and, and take people away and catch them all up in their ego and their pride and their sinfulness. So Satan attempts to say to God, put forth your hand now, touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. God's reaction is, I don't do that. You do it, though. I'm going to allow you to go do it. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So what did God just do? He said, here are your parameters. You can touch everything he owns. You can't touch him. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. God exercises his absolute control, his absolute sovereignty, and says you can touch his stuff, but you can't touch him. So could Satan at that point touch Job even if he wanted to? No. Who's in charge? God's in charge. By the way, did God look at anything Job did in order to make that decision? Did he say to Satan, well, you know, he wasn't very good last week. So since you want to touch his stuff, yeah, he needs a little upbraiding. He needs a little lesson. Go ahead. Yeah, do your worst. He didn't say that. He left it at Job's a good man, upright, eschews evil. Have you considered him? Okay, you can touch his stuff. Had nothing to do with Job. It had everything to do with God in his sovereignty saying to Satan, okay, go ahead, you can do it, to prove that Job would remain steadfast in his faith, in his love, in his integrity toward God. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put your hand against him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, here's what happened. It happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. You remember, we were told earlier that the brothers would throw a banquet and all their brothers and sisters would come to their house. And so the day came around where all the brothers and sisters were together in the oldest brother's house. They're all gathered together in one place at one time. And at that moment... A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them all. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. So one of his servants comes to him and says, you've just lost most of your livestock, which is the basis on which you reckon your wealth. So you are destroyed financially. The Sabaeans have taken your donkeys and your oxen, and worse, they killed your servants that were in charge of those animals. Only I escaped. I came back to tell you. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another servant came and said, 
the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So there was apparently a massive lightning strike that came down and burned up all your sheep. Okay, that's all your oxen now, all your donkeys, and now all your sheep. And the good majority of your servants. Wiped out. And this is just back to back. He's hearing all this bad news. Just back to back. So Satan caused that lightning strike? All we know is what we read. Yeah. While he was still speaking, another one came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. You're wiped out financially. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and it struck the four corners of the house, meaning that the house collapsed. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Back to back bad news. You're wiped out financially. Your servants are gone. All your animals are gone. Now your family's gone. Now your children are gone. Wiped out in an instant, every one of them. How many of us could hold up under that kind of pressure? And when you get that level of bad news, it's bad enough if somebody had come and said, hey, one of your daughters died. Okay, that's awful. That's heart-wrenching. I've lost a daughter. She was young. I didn't expect this. No, all of your kids, all 10 of them, gone, all wiped out at once. And you're financially destroyed, completely wiped out. The natural reaction to all that would be to shake your fist at God and say, what is this and why is this happening to me? Look what Job does. Then Job arose And he tore his robe and he shaved his head, a sign of mourning and a sign of repentance. And he fell on the ground and he worshiped. Isn't that an odd reaction? Rather than saying, why would you do this to me, God? He realized it was from God and he got down in front of God. Now he's going to spell out his theology in a moment. Verse 21 says, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. That, by the way, is universally true. Anybody here born fully clothed? (laughs) Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. I've lived this life, but you come in owning nothing, and you leave owning nothing. You came in with just the flesh on your bones and you leave with just the flesh on your bones. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he saw everything he had 
as a blessing from God that God had allowed him to have. He was just the steward of what God allowed him to have in this lifetime. But recognizing that it was God that gave it to him, he also understood God can take it away. Now, we all know that as parents, as grown-ups, we know that we can give stuff to our kids, and if they either mistreat it or don't appreciate it or whatever other reason, we can take it away. I've given games to James when he was younger, where he then said, you know, I'm going to go to my room and go play that game. And I said, no, you're going to go clean the kitchen first or whatever the chore was. You're going to do your chores first. And I took the game away for his good. And he knew I could do that because I was in charge. I'm the boss. And by the way, Sandy is really staring down his kids right now. So I, <laughs> I think he's 100% on my side in this one, yeah? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> That's because in the family unit, we have the authority to give, and we have the authority to take away. God has the same thing. Whatever you have, from your clothes to your house to your car to your physical stuff, to your health, to your children, whatever you have, to your right mind, that's all a gift from God. And he gives it to you, and he can take it from you. And if you understand that, if you can conceive of a God who is so sovereign that he's in charge of the giving and the taking, then no amount of his giving to you will change the fact that you see him as the sovereign. He's the one who's in charge, and he gave me, and I'm thankful, and I've been blessed. But when he takes it from you, he's still the sovereign, and you still need to get down in front of him, and you still need to thank him. I started this evening by saying I used to think the book of Job was all about why men suffer because this first chapter is, is kind of an explanation of why men suffer. They suffer because God allows it. And that's, that's really what it is. It's about why men suffer and they suffer because God is sovereign and God in his sovereignty allows suffering and therefore that's what the book is about. I don't think that anymore. I think the theme of the book of Job is why men worship God. You worship God because he's sovereign, regardless of the circumstances. Good circumstances, he's sovereign, worship him. Bad circumstances, he's sovereign, worship him. That's the example that Job gives us here. He said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we're told in verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And blaming God is almost like sport in the world these days. People whose lives aren't going exactly the way they think they ought to go, and they end up saying silly, stupid things like, well, then you're not going to be my God. Like you're the one that chooses God. And people shake their fist at God. Well, if that's the way you're going to be, well, then you're, uh, I don't want any part of you. But this God, this sovereign God, the God who can do stuff like this is the God who sometimes the anti-Calvinists online will say things to you like, well, then your God is a monster. 
I've had people say that to me several times. The God who, who supersedes human will and just does whatever he wants, your God is a monster. And I say, no, my God is God. My God's the only one that exists. And this is what he's like. And you got to deal with that. And this book is about why men worship that God. You get down in front of that God regardless because there is no other God and he's going to be what he's like regardless. Have you ever had to deal with somebody? I'll pick on April for a moment. Actually, it's not picking on April. Together, April and I are going to pick on Micah. Um, (laughs) She's on my side in this one. Have you ever seen Micah do something where you've just thought in your head, that's what he's like? Yeah, see? Yeah, you live with somebody long enough, you're like, yeah, well, that's what he's like. I tried to change it, but but he's not going to change. Yes. She is way too vociferous with her agreement. But yeah, because you just recognize after all those years of being together, It's not going to change. That's just what he's like. Okay. We're being told what God is like. And he's not going to change. So your options are beat your head against the brick wall of an unchanging sovereign God and go through the rest of your life angry and frustrated. Or get used to it. Just come to the point of saying, that's what he's like. And he's going to be like that regardless. And knowing that that's what he's like and he's in charge of of your eternity and he's in charge of outer darkness and glory, well then, regardless of what he's like, get down on your face in front of him because he's not going to change just to satisfy you. Now hopefully Micah's going to change to satisfy April. I told her to get used to it. Yeah. You've told, <laughs> that's all you can do. That's all you can do is just say, get used to it. Just say, that's what I'm like. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, that's not enough for Satan. Satan's going to go further. He's going to push harder. Again, there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And the Satan, the accuser, also came among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you been? Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? One more time, because Job did the right stuff. You said... If I let you knock his stuff around, if I let you take all his blessings away, that he'll curse me to my face. He didn't do it. Instead, he worshiped me, and he did not sin, and he did not blame God. So God now rightly says, have you noticed, Job? God at this point is kind of winning the wager. So the Lord said to Satan, have you considered, or the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil? By the way, the word God right there, I told you earlier that the capital L-O-R-D is the proper name of God, Yahweh, that's God pointing out himself. 
the word God here is Elohim. Elohim, that I am at the end of a Hebrew word, pluralizes it. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, we read God speaking of himself in the plural. And that's why we right away translate, let us make man in our image. The reason that those phrases, those pronouns are pluralized is because Elohim is plural. And so the plurality of God, which speaks of the Trinity, a God who is three in one, that Elohim is the one who says to Satan, there's no one like him on earth. He's a blameless and an upright man, fearing Elohim and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Notice that phrase, without cause. There was nothing in Job that caused this. Now, Job's friends are going to show up. We're going to see it in the preceding weeks. They're going to show up and say, there has to be a cause. There has to be a reason. Job, you had to have done something. Just admit what you've done, and then God will forgive you. Then God will restore all your stuff back to you. Just admit it. But here's God admitting, you stirred me up. You incited me against him without a cause. He hadn't done anything. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bones and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, okay, I can see that he would retain his integrity when I took away all his stuff. But make a man sick. Oh, I've seen this so many times. Faithful, faithful people who get sick. Their bodies betray them. And the pain kicks in. The confusion kicks in. And all the symptoms kick in. And after a while, they're like, where's God in this? And again, God's where he's always been, sitting on his throne, doing whatever pleases him. And what pleased him at this moment for you was that you go through this sickness. But boy, sickness can drive people to despair. Satan knows that. And he says, put forth your hand and touch his bone in his flesh. He's going to curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Notice again that God sets up the parameters. You can make him really sick. You can't kill him. You can't take his life, but you can make it hard on him. Mm -hmm. Verse 7, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Anybody here ever had seeping boils? I'm not raising my hand either, but... Do boils that come from sunburnt shoulders count? Because I've had my fair share of those. Those are very much like it. Yeah. But these are apparently diseased and pus-filled, and he has them from the sole of his foot, so he can't even walk on his feet, to the top of his head. He's covered in these boils. So it winds up, verse 8, that he ends up sitting on ashes, on an ash heap, And he takes a broken piece of pottery 
and he's scraping himself with the pottery so that the pus and blood can run out of the boils, just trying to get some relief from the pain. Okay, so now you've lost everything. You're financially destroyed. Your children are dead. And now you're covered with boils. You're going to keep saying, God is good? You're going to get up in the morning and sing praises to God? You got to, at some point, it just seems like you would break. At some point, you'd say, enough. Notice also, I expect that Job would really want, like the rest of us would, would really want this to be the end of his life. I've lost everything. I've lost my children. And now look at me. Look at the wretched condition I'm in. Take my life, God. Why are you keeping me alive? But God's already told Satan, you can't kill him. He's still got to live. He's got to live through this. So while he's sitting on an ash heap, scraping himself, his wife shows up. Now, we don't know his wife's name. We're just going to call her Mrs. Job. Mrs. Job shows up and with a tender heart (coughs) and tremendous compassion, she says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? You know what that means now? Are you still claiming you didn't do anything wrong? Are you still holding to the worship of God regardless of all this? Curse God and die. Number one, it ain't up to him. I'm sure he'd love to die. I'm sure dying would be a relief after all this. But curse God and die. Notice that despite everything that's happened to her and her husband, don't forget these are her children that died. Don't forget that was her household that was destroyed. And now her husband is sitting on an ash heap covered in boils and scraping himself They don't even have a marriage relation anymore, but notice who she said did it. Curse God. She blamed God. This came from God. She didn't say curse Satan and die. She recognized, for whatever reason, God is doing this to you. Why do you still retain your integrity? Thanks, Mrs. Job. But he said to her, you speak like one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept the good from God and not accept the adversity? If we're going to accept that God blesses us like crazy, if we're going to accept that God gives us way too much, and if you don't think you have way too much right at this moment, I'll bet every one of you has a closet with more clothes in it. You've got the clothes you're wearing right now, and you've got clothes at home that you keep in a box. Just in case, I have shirts at home that are older than my son. Why don't I get rid of the shirts? Oh, I don't know. You know, they they still seem okay to me. You know, I I have shirts. Yeah, I have way too much. Not only did I eat dinner, but I have a refrigerated (laughs) box at home with more food in it. And I have money in my wallet where if I'm a little bit hungry, I can go buy more food. I have way too much, way too much blessing. And you know what? I accept it readily. Thanks, God. God's been good to me. God gave us all this. God keeps providing for me. 
This has been, and you'll excuse me a little personal aside for a moment, this has been one of the best years of my life. I'll tell anybody. It's been great. It's been great. I adore my wife. I'm like out of my mind, crazy in love with my wife. She's a blessing from God. Because there's no way that I could have arranged this. She was on the other side of the planet. I didn't know her. We couldn't court. And we're married now. And it turns out she's like the most excellent wife ever. I'm so excited that it all worked out. So Okay, so I accept that. Thank you, God. I accept that. And I accept the nice house that we live in, which, by the way, is now paid off. So, hey, I accept my, oh, and I have a nice car I drive, by the way, paid off. And I accept the fact that I have a refrigerated box full of food and I have clothes full. I get furniture. I have more furniture than I need because I can only sit on one piece at a time. But I got lots of chairs in my house. I got computers and I I got so much stuff. I accept it. Thank you, God. I accept it. The argument from Job is, okay, you've been so willingly accepting of all that good stuff. What if the trouble comes at the hand of the very same God? Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to accept it when it goes bad? And it was bad for Job. Much worse than it's been for any of us sitting here right now. I'm guessing none of you have sat on an ash heap carving holes in yourself to let the pus run out of the boils that cover your body. Job says, despite the fact that this is happening to me, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't say anything negative about God. He didn't blame God. He spoke well of God. In other words, he spoke the right things about God. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Shofar, the Naamathite, And they made an appointment, in other words, they agreed together to come to sympathize with Job and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they couldn't even recognize him. Sitting in that pathetic state, covered with those boils, bleeding out and seeping with sickness, when they looked up and saw him at a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky so that the dust would rain down on them. And then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word. For they saw that his pain was very great. That's where we'll stop tonight. Act one. That's the first prologue of the book of Job. Now, Job is going to start in chapter three, explaining his situation. 
kind of lamenting his situation, and then they're going to start answering back to him. And that's where we're going to get into the theology that is both the right and the wrong theology. So again, as we're reading through the book of Job, we have to make sure that we know which side of the argument is speaking. Because it will be real easy to hear some of the arguments from like Eliphaz and say, well, wait, that's a really good argument. Sometimes I have friends or folks or people on Facebook who will quote pieces of the book of Job. They'll just quote some verse out of the book of Job. You have to pay attention to who's speaking because sometimes the quotes will sound really good. But then you go and find out that it was said by somebody that God said, you've angered me by saying that. (laughs) So you don't just throw it up on Facebook like a meme and say, hey, it's from the Bible, so good enough. That'll be an encouragement to folks. Notice the very last part of chapter 2, what his three friends did when they saw him in the condition he was in, was that they sat down with him for seven days and seven nights. They were just there with him. They didn't speak. I think that's a lesson to all of us. Sometimes there's just nothing to be said. Sometimes you just got to be there. Sometimes all a person needs to know is that somebody cares. That's all they need. I've been in circumstances, too many of them, I'm afraid, where there just were no words. There's just, there's nothing to say. But I'd sit down next to the, the hurting person and just say, I'm here. And then just sit for, man, I can think of one instance where we sat for a couple of hours. And there was nothing to say. Elder Ward, years ago, said to me, I just never forgot this conversation, but right at the time when my life was like a disaster level, 2003, he called me and and he said to me, "Um, why didn't you tell me about this? And I said, well, I was embarrassed and I was ashamed and I didn't want to admit to you that my whole life had fallen apart. And he said to me, Jim, have I been such a poor friend to you that you don't know that you could pour all your, this is a quote, you could pour all your crap in my lap and I would kiss you while you cry and I would hold you while you scream. That's what it is to really love someone, to really be with someone, to really care for someone, to really take care of someone. Sometimes circumstances are just so bad that all you can do is just be there for someone. And I'll tell you, when somebody's in that kind of condition, wiped out financially, and their health is wiped out, and their own wife has turned on them and said, curse God and die, I mean, just the combination of events don't get much worse than that. Do you think he would have been encouraged if somebody showed up and said, well, you know, God works all things for good. (laughs) Sometimes it's not the right time or place for theologizing. Sometimes you just got to sit there with folks, let them know you care. And that's why when they're well, when they're healthy, as you all are here tonight, that's why we teach you the grace now. And why we teach you the theology now. 
because when you get to the point where you really need it, you'll have it. You'll know it. You've been taught it. When you're in the midst of your pain, it's not the right time to try to teach somebody something. They're not in learning mode at that point. They're in pain mode. But they'll get through the pain if you've already told them ahead of time that a sovereign God does everything according to his own will and that it does always result in your greater good and his greater glory. The purpose of the book of Job is why men worship God. Got it? Got it. All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.